0: Well, I'm not sure how to ease into this one. So I'll just throw this out there and we'll see where it lands. The greatest Pixar film of all time, without question, is Ratatouille. (laughs) Its original witty story is as sophisticated as the food. The The dazzling visuals of Paris Two perfect protagonists in Remy and Linguini. A legit villain in Anton Ego. And you always get extra points if the protagonist not only defeats the villain, but converts them. But the best part about Ratatouille is that you can't watch it without immediately going going out to eat or making plans to go out to eat. Try it. Let me finish out my... Top five, just for fun. Number two is Up. Three, Coco. Some of you still haven't seen this, and I don't know how that's possible. Four is Inside Out. And finally, five is Finding Nemo. That's my top five, and it was harder than you think. Toy Story, for sure, has the, me- the most memorable characters. Two is the best, but one has the best soundtrack. You've Got a Friend in Me, you can't beat that. Though Cars has James Taylor. And the score in Incredibles is, well, incredible. A lot of you would have the family superhero film on your list and are counting down the days until Incredibles 2. Does anybody know? 12? 12 more days? What's your list? Go ahead. Tell somebody next to you. If you haven't been a kid or had a kid or your kids haven't had kids in the last 20 years, then use your list of animated Disney movies. Go ahead, take a couple minutes, tell somebody around you what's your top five favorite Pixar films? All right, they say getting middle schoolers back on track is hard, but I'm not sure. Maybe it's a little more difficult with adults. Just joking. <clears throat> but this morning, I wanna talk about a different Pixar film, a film that's a little underrated. Maybe, maybe it made your top five, Finding Dory. Finding Dory is the sequel to Finding Nemo, which as you would expect from the title is another story about finding someone. And it features Dory, a regal blue tang, as the main character, the just keep swimming friend of Marlin who helps him find Nemo in the original film. The sequel begins with a flashback to Dory's childhood. Hi, I'm Dory. I suffer from short term memory loss, says baby Dory. Because of her condition, Dory's parents spend a lot of painstaking time warning her about the dangers of the undertow, afraid that she will get taken away by the current and forget how to get back home. And that's exactly what happens. At first she remembers at least a little. Dory goes from looking for her parents, to looking for someone, to looking for something. And that's when she bumps into Marland and we're caught up to the plot of Finding Nemo which, as we discover, takes place within the plot of Finding Dory. The film then fast-forwards to Dory's new life in the reef with Marlin and Nemo, when the mention of the undertow unearths an urgent memory. I have a family! Suddenly, Dory is aware of what she is missing. Henry Nouwen once said, One of the tragedies of our life is that we keep forgetting who we are. Our human condition is like Dory's. We suffer from a pattern of remembering and forgetting. Just when we think we've got a grasp on our true identity, we are taken by an undertow of doubt, distraction, fear, pain, pride, or any number of currents. Like Dory, we've got our name, but it's displaced of its meaning because we've lost our story. Think of it this way. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, we're introduced to the importance of our personal stories when the two beloved hobbits, Merry and Pippin, after fleeing orcs and escaping into Fanghorn Forest, meet an ent, which looks strikingly like a giant, Talking tree. They're called the shepherds of the forest, and this particular ant goes by the name of Treebeard. We find out later. Though when asked his name by the hobbits, he refuses to tell them. This is the reason he gives them. For I am not going to tell you my name, not yet at any rate. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell the story of the things they belong to in my language. In the old Entish, as you might say. It is a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it because we do not say anything in it unless it is worth taking a long time to say and to listen to. Real names tell the story of the thing they belong to, says Treebeard. And I'd add that the opposite is true. Stories tell the real name of the thing they belong to Could it be that we have forgotten who we are, who we really are, because we've lost our story? A 2016 Pew Research Center poll revealed that in the U.S., fewer than half of Christians, 42%, say reading the Bible is essential to their identity as Christians. And roughly one-third, 35%, say regularly attending religious services is essential to their Christian identity. Let me say that again in different terms. Less and less Christians believe that reading the story of God and reenacting the story of God with other worshiping Christians has anything to do with being a Christian. We are forgetting who we are. And so it's no surprise that When we read that of the 51% of Americans who believe the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees, only 25% of white evangelicals agree. The group least likely to have a compassionate stance of any other demographic of age, education, race, or religion, refugees fleeing for their lives, many of them children, many of them Christians, We are forgetting who we are. It's no surprise then when we read that 88% of white evangelicals say their views on immigration are primarily influenced by concerns other than their Christian faith. Almost all Christians in the U.S. say that. Never mind that there are three love commandments in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. We've got that one. Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Sort of got that one. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19 says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners. Love God, love neighbor and love immigrant. Never mind that the Greek word in the New Testament for hospitality, philoxenos, literally means love immigrants. We talk about the gift of hospitality in Christian circles, but biblical hospitality doesn't mean you're really good at having your friends over for pizza. It means entertaining the stranger. Look, I know the issue of immigration is complicated. Here's something easy. Immigrants are people. Made in the image of God. And separating children from their parents at the border is beyond cruelty. As biblical Christians, we must boldly reject this. If the Bible and the Christian gathering are not shaping us to be Christians, what is? What alternative narratives are forming us? The spirit of fear and self-preservation, nationalism, consumerism, racism. We must return to scripture, not for daily inspiration, but for identity formation. The Bible tells us who we are, and we must not... Neglect gathering together. In the book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith says, Christian worship rehabituates our loves because it embeds us in and embeds in us a different orienting story, the story of God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And so I propose we must Recollect ourselves by recollecting the story of God. In other words, we will remember by retelling the overarching narrative of Scripture, the big story, and the individual stories in the library of the Bible answer our most foundational human question Who am I? With an even better divine one Who is God? So in our summer series that we're calling Ancient Faith, we'll explore how God reveals himself to humanity in a series of Old Testament stories. These stories will, like the seashells Dory's parents placed along the way, help us retrace our steps back to our ultimate loss, our true selves and our ultimate relationship. And so let's begin at the start. God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Heavens and the earth, light, day, night, sky, land, sea, plants, stars, sun, fish, birds, livestock, wild animals. Look, I know we've read this before. Some of us have read this more than any other part of the Bible, and particularly in January, thanks to our failed attempts at the Bible in a year reading plans. But let's take a moment, rub your eyes, resist your, reset your minds, let yourself get taken up in the wonder of it. For me, to catch a fresh glimpse of Scripture, I sometimes read a different version. Today, let's use the children of God's storybook Bible. The creation. In the very beginning, God's love bubbled over when there was nothing else. No trees, no birds, no animals, no sky, no sea, only darkness. Out of this love God spoke, let there be light. And there was day and there was night. And when the first day was done, God smiled and knew that it was good. On the second day, God said, let there be sky where the clouds can float and the wind can blow. And the sky was bright blue and beautiful. On the third day, God said, let the waters gather together into oceans and let the dry land appear. Now, God decided to make the world even more dazzling with tall trees and long grass. And then the first flower opened in all its glory. On the fourth day, God said, Let the sky be filled with the sun and the moon. And God scattered stars across the sky like sparkling diamonds. On the fifth day, God said, Let there be birds to fly and sing, and fish to swim and splash, and the world was filled with the joyous sound of birdsong. On the sixth day, God said, let there be animals, elephants and giraffes, cats and mice, and bees and bugs, and suddenly the world was a very noisy place, but something was still missing. Then God said, I will make people, and I will make them like me so they can enjoy the earth and take care of it. He did just as he said, and it was all so very, very good. God looked at everything that he had made and clapped his hands together in delight. Isn't it wonderful? And on the seventh day, God laughed and rested and enjoyed his glorious creation. He laughed. He clapped his hands in delight. Genesis is an alternative creation narrative, a counter ideology to other polytheistic ancient Near East variations during its time. The Hebrew version of the start of all things reveals a cosmos that emerges not from violence or conflict like the other stories, but from a generous God. But let's not miss the power We've seen otherworldly power, haven't we? Think Thanos or LeBron James. (laughs) But we've not seen and read stories of power wholly wielded out of love and for love. God's love bubbled over, the story said, but it's more like an eruption. And God's generosity seems to save the best for last. Humans, and there is something unique about humans. And it's found in this curious phrase, the image of God. This phrase, I believe, is pivotal in helping us recover our story and our true identity. The Imago Dei. Everything sounds better in Latin, right? But what does it mean? What does the image of God mean? From Irenaeus through Augustine to Aquinas, many have understood it as a sort of metaphysical analogy or similarity between the human soul and the being of God, creator and creature, echoes of each other. Karl Barth and others proposed that the image of God refers to the capacity of human beings to be addressed by and to respond to God's word. The Imago Dei, some see it, is sort of a common language between creator and creature, granted only to humans. Many theologians have sought ethical, spiritual, and relational meanings, and these insights are important, and most of them are true, though likely unfamiliar to the writer of Genesis. So what did the phrase mean to an Israelite? The Hebrew word tzelem, translated image, would have been a familiar one, the gods of their neighbors would have fashioned. Uh, the gods of their neighbors would have been fashioned into images. So in this word "image," they would have pictured that and more—something visible and embodied, a living representative of God. The consensus of Old Testament scholars is that the key to understanding the image of God is in its immediate context, verse 28 which says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. An authority to rule. Co-creators. God grants them dominion. J. Richard Middleton calls this a royal function. And we see reiterations of it throughout the Torah. Israel would be a holy nation. A kingdom of priests called to show the world what God is like. And so, then, to the original recipients of Genesis, the image of God would have been both a status and an office, a gift and a calling. The divine imprint meant that Israel was blessed to be a blessing. What does the story of God in Genesis 1 tell us about our identity? First, God delights in us. Second, he grants us dominion. Delight and dominion. This is the idea captured in the meaning of the image of God. Well, it turns out humans aren't very good at the Imago Day, as we'll see even more in the weeks to come in this series. But let's recall what happens next in our particular passage. The image bearers sin. They eat the serpents lie, break the command, cross the boundary, and they hide. The fall happens, and we see the first humans forget who they are and lose their story. It sets off a historical pattern of disconnection from the delight of God and a mess-making of the whole dominion thing. Enter us. Enter our newsfeeds. An average of more than one school shooting a week in the United States this year so far. 4,645 and rising U.S. citizens dead in Puerto Rico. The image of God, the Imago Day, seems to be broken. And yet, let us not become weary. In doing good, for the paradigm, uncreated image of God becomes visible and embodied in Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the answer to both questions. Who am I and who is God? Jesus is the answer to our forgetting ourselves and losing our story. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. Theologian Emil Bruner states, the fact that man is made in the image of God is only fully disclosed in the divine act of incarnation. And so in Jesus, the Imago Dei, we see both the delight of God and the meaning of rule and subdue the earth. First, let's consider the the delight of God revealed in Jesus from Mark's gospel. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love With you, I am well pleased. So much Genesis-like language that I've never noticed before in this passage. There's water, heaven is torn open, the Spirit descends, a voice declaring from heaven. And the delight of God. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Just the other day, we were celebrating Asher's birthday, my now seven-year-old son. He had just opened something he was excited about in a room of people. He looked around and he searched me out. And then our eyes connected from across the crowd and his already wide grin somehow got wider. For a second, we were the only ones in the room sharing something. And that something that happened to us was a gift, delight. We delighted in each other. The theologian Anthony de Mello says, "Behold the one beholding you, smiling." I have to imagine this was like the scene in Genesis, the scene in Mark, the Imago Day beholding God, beholding the Imago Day, smiling, delighting. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point that when we when the living god looks at us he says to us what he said to jesus on that day you are my son you are my daughter whom i love with you i am well pleased that's good news not only do we see the delight of god in jesus but we also see a clarification to the royal calling of the Imago Dei. Consider these passage passages about Jesus. Mark 10, verse 42 through 45. Jesus called them together and said, "'You know that those who are regarded "'as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, "'and their high officials exercise authority over them. "'Not so with you. "'Instead, whoever wants to be great among you "'must be your servant, "'and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking in the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearances as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so in the New Testament, the Imago Dei becomes the imitato Christi, the imitation of Christ. The Imago Dei is not broken, but alive in Jesus and in his body, you and I, when we imitate him. Christ was both aware that he was the image of God and that every created being he met was the image of God. Jesus was secure in his delight of God. Pastor Jonathan Martin put it this way. When God called Jesus his beloved, Jesus did something truly remarkable. He believed him. What's interesting about believing in Jesus Is that it has a whole lot to do with believing like Jesus, believing that you are a beloved son and daughter of God. And let us add that believing in Jesus is a whole lot like believing like Jesus, that everyone, everywhere is a son or daughter of God. When you look in the mirror, do you see the image of God? Do you believe it at your core that you are God's kid, loved by God? Do you see the one beholding you, smiling? And when you look through your window, do you see the image of God, the window to your neighborhood, the window of your phone screen, the window of our borders? Do you see first and finally The image of God. Keep in mind, the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. And the biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. That's hard. Mirrors and windows. When we allow the gospel to change what we see in the mirror, the image of God, the gospel will change what we see in a window, the image of God. This morning, I want to invite you to take a moment to reflect. Think about your mirror. Think about your windows. What do you need to hear from God this morning? Do you need God to speak into your mirror your own Imago Day, or into your window, the Imago Day. Take a few moments now at your seat, in any posture, with your eyes open, with your eyes closed, and reflect on your mirror in your windows.